Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us as we journey through the Silmarillion, exploring the deepest reaches of Tolkien's history, starting with the first song and ending with the defeat of Sauron's master, the Dark Lord Morgoth. Okay, so, um, a thing from one of these chapters that you were thinking about at Sarah. Hmm? Starting with me? You're starting the round table. Um, a thing that I liked, well, where was I going with this? I had a thought earlier today and it's gone now because I'm an hour later than I expected to be. Um, oh, this is like right at the beginning of these chapters is the one moment that Mandos, um, is really particularly valid because most of the time I don't like Mandos particularly, but in this one, when everyone's kind of like, oh, Feanor, he's going to be like, you know, it's good. It's gonna be terrible, but also great, and it will bring much beauty. And Mandis is just like, it'll still be evil though. Like mood. <laughs> but those are my thoughts. This is this is a really interesting. Like, this is pretty much the entire rest of the story of Feanor, and the still evil though is like pretty much a point, a valid point. This is the entire rest of the story of Feanor. Yep. Everybody else kind of comes at Feanor in these chapters with like that Ollivander talking about Lord Voldemort feel that's like, did terrible things, but great ones. And Mandus is just like, yeah, but bad. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, at Rob. Um... I don't, I don't really have anything intelligent to say this time. I don't know if I usually do. That's a good point. Uh, I did like the, um, like when they're making the, the sun and the moon and the moon guy's just too wimpy to be the sun. <laughs> I thought that was, that was kind of cute. Uh, and then how he just keeps on getting distracted by things so he never keeps this rigid path that would make more sense. Uh, so they have to like adjust how how the cosmos works a little bit to to accommodate his uh, his desire to not be lonely. I thought all that was kind of fun. Nice, Eloise. Um, There's a lot happening in that. Um, I'm gonna go like for like uh, Angrad, who's like. Yeah, I'm welcome here. So I guess uh, I'm gonna paint the Nordola like, I swear, we're not terrible. Like, we do great thing. And like the Mendos, but still evil, um, is like relegated at the back. And I'm like, this is like so coming back. Because when you introduce your family to someone who you won't trust you, um, you don't only say good things. You also ask, like you also say, well, you know, um, you admit the past mistakes and the past fuck up. And like considering that Ferno himself is a mistake, living and breathing, well, not anymore, but you know, and he has seven little mistakes following him. Um, <laughs> you should mention that illegally. 
maybe, just saying. Um, but also, Thingo, when someone is telling you about someone else and he's like, is it great? And you're like, just great, just great, just great, just great. Don't take it as face value. There's probably something hidden somewhere in the back. And I understand why you're like, yeah, you're probably great. Please take those lands that are not mine. But don't enter in my house ever again. Um, because like, yeah, good point. They can't be only great. That's, that doesn't exist. No, no, no. Seven little mistakes, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, at Kara. Yeah, so these are some pretty interesting chapters. I didn't quite finish uh, of the return of the Noldor, um, but one part that like kind of stood out to me as more of a joke is when they're talking about the first dawn of the sun and the sound of waterfalls. And it's this big majestic thing. And then Morgoth is like, this is horrible, and just retreats deeper into Ongbad. And I was just picturing the Grinch and when Whoville is like singing Christmas carols and it's all magical. And the Grinch is like, this is horrible. It just retreats into his mountain. And that's that's what I was picturing. And I had a really good laugh. Oh, that's great. That yeah, that's totally that image. <laughs> Tristan. Oh, um, <laughs> so I could bring in more fun stuff from um, Book of Lost Tales if we want, but I'll, I'll save that for later because it has to do with Tilthian and the moon. Um, Tilian? Tilian. Tilian? Yeah. Sure. Yep, that's his name. I remember all of the names. Yep. <laughs> so there was something else that I had. And it was, oh, just like, there, there was a moment when Fingolfin is like stepping off the Helcoraxe at the head of his people. And like the moon is rising and there's flowers blooming at his feet because they're like, there's so much light. This must be the sun, this is the sun, right? This is more light than we've ever seen before. And so the, the you know, blooming and everything's beautiful. And it's just like, wow, this is, this is a Fingolfin moment. He's just being himself, isn't he? Also, Fingon is just excellent in these chapters, like 12 out of 10. <laughs> what a man. <laughs> <laughs> what? Nothing. Okay. This is bots. Okay. <laughs> Were they influenced by me? <laughs> um, okay, uh, I... I don't know. I like a lot of things. I really like Arian. I really liked the description of the Sun Maiden. And this is the chapter where you find out that the Sun is an unfallen Balrog girl, which is like incredible. I love that so much. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Josh. Hi. 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 Um, yes, I did have some thoughts. I'm just trying to quickly remember what they were. Um, yes, I, I think it's really cool that um, you've got all these Valar working together on the sun and moon. Like, 
pretty much half of the Valor are involved in this in some way. And then right after they put up the Sun and Moon, they have to put it they have to put out a major bug fix. Because they can't keep them under control. Um, and it is extremely clear that this whole thing is written from an elvish point of view when you get all these kind of terrible nicknames for the race of men. They're, they're rough. I mean, many people were not here yet, uh, last week when we talked about like how the dwarves are described. And I mean, I can continue this week too. But I mean, to be yeah. fair, it's from character perspective, but you know, like, it's like the dwarf, like, yes, yeah, that's how, like, that's how, like, city, it means that. And it's like, oh, yes, we're going to immediately translate the name and forget the verbiage name because we don't care about your freaking language. <laughs> I'm like, rude. Not pretty enough. <laughs> like, no wonder the dwarves don't want anything to do with you. Like, you're such assholes. <laughs> Caranthor is just, you know, I mean, he's not the worst, but he's like <laughs> second um, or third. I'm pretty sure Caranthor is the worst. He is in this chapter, but unlike Curfin, Caranthor gets a character arc. Like, Curfin doesn't get better. He's just consistently bad the entire time. Yeah. Spoilers. All, all three of those C kids are a problem. Hey, we got Kelagorm doing his one good deed today. That yeah. was great. Woo. Yeah. He killed some orcs. Good for him. Woo. Do, doing his best. I mean, best didn't everyone kill orcs in this chapter except Thingol and his people? <laughs> I mean, Kelagorm is specifically mentioned as leading, like, a charge that, I don't know, was important. Was important. Killed a bunch of the orcs that were coming up from the south from Harry and Kyrdan, I think. I don't know. Okay. So I'll give him my that. Point, <laughs> my point is that with Kelagorm, you get a vague sense of a fall because you have this we had we had this description of him earlier as being like friends with Orome and stuff. And, and then, he has the best dog. Yeah, and he has the best dog and he wrote <laughs> orcs in this chapter. But then like you just see him being absolutely awful later. Um, with Caranthir, he starts out, like, absolutely horrible, but he does actually get a bit better. Kerfin presumably stays flat the entire way through. <laughs> I mean, maybe his character arc is from bad to worse. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we that's don't know not exactly how bad he is at the beginning, so... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, all right, okay, let's let's dig into this. Hmm. What are we starting with, Sun and Moon? Okay. We're starting at the beginning. Yeah, sorry, I don't remember which chapter came first. So. Oh, okay, that's fair. Okay, so of the Sun and the Moon and the Hiding of Valinor. Um, Sarah, do you want to start us off talking about this whole, like, Manwe was very, very sad about Feanor stuff, and then kind of waxes poetic about his songs, you know, um, 
Thus, even as error spoke to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought into Ea, and evil yet be good to have been. But Mando said, and yet remain evil, to me shall Feanor come soon. Do you want to talk about that a bit? What's going on here? So I think what's going on here, I, I, I'm thinking about the things that you might want me to specifically say. What I want to say is just that, like, it's pretty much what you've already said, <laughs> which is Manway is really excited about Feanor, and it's because Feanor is very, very artistic, and they really value that. Um, but, like, part of what's going on here is that Manway, like, does not can't really wrap his head around bad things. Like, doesn't understand why people do bad things. Um, is confused by all of Feanor's choices, obviously. Um, and so he's just sitting there and he's like, what a tragedy that Feanor completely unexpectedly has fallen into such badness. And everyone else is kind of like, it is not unexpected. <laughs> um, and so, it, like, it, it's a testament in many ways to Manwe's character that he is able to see the good in everything around him. Like, that's not a bad quality. It's just when, like, somebody sets out to kind of, you know, do, do the kinds of things that Feyner's about to do and throw the world into chaos. And Manwe's, like, sitting there being like, this is very sad. It's so sad that he's not making art anymore. And Mandos is like, it's a good thing this man's gonna die soon. <laughs> it can only go downhill from here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Manwe, and then when elves speak of him later on, like this, and it's, or this is why it's kind of a repeated thing, because when Feanor dies, um, people say really similar things about how mighty Feanor is, right? Where it says Feanor was the mightiest in all parts of body and mind, in valor, in endurance, in beauty, in understanding, in skill, in strength, and in subtlety alike. Of all the children of the Luvatar, and bright flame was in him. And you're like, you're saying a lot of things about the greatness of a guy whose primary role in this text is to plunge the world into chaos. <laughs> like, like, most of what Feanor does is cause problems, and everyone's like, he was just the greatest of us to ever live. And Manwe, like, echoes that, and I... I don't like it. I'm of the opinion that Feanor was not the greatest to ever live, and doesn't deserve the praise. <laughs> Those are my thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I feel like part of that is because this is from such a macro perspective, though Josh is now suggesting pro-Noldor bias in the chat, which, like, also fair. Um, from a broader perspective, very pro-Caliquendi bias, but also presumably these are the Noldor's own songs that get carried down, because Elrond. <clears throat> Spoilers. <clears throat> um, <laughs> the one to survive. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I feel like from such a macro perspective, um, all the, Feanor just seems like an asshole who was very good at art and that doesn't really seem that doesn't really seem to make him mighty I guess what what do you guys think did anyone else have issues with this 
the way you present it as like an asshole very good at art, it sounds a bit like since in France at least, age old argument of but you have to separate the art from the artist. And I'm like, yeah, separate it, separate it. Say the artist was an asshole and the art is great. And stop saying the artist is great because that's not the case. He's an asshole. Um, yeah, so um, <laughs> like um, another thing that I found like when, when they were like praising Fian, I was like, he's just died, died and like all of them, badness happened because of him and they're all very aware it's still very fresh in them where it's not like 200 years later it's like literally 20 days ago um and the like the, the, the songs are like yeah he was great and it's like but how short is your memory like i'm pretty sure even a goldfish would remember he was not great like you saw the fire like the only light you had beside the stars was the fire he put on the fucking ship after he abandoned you so like Great is probably not the best epithet epithet for that um, for that dude. And so after like I dumb I was conf completely dumbfounded by all of the like short memory of the elf for like which is very unfortunate for like immortal creatures. Um, I I immediately realized that there's a parallel like like another parallel between Fiano and Morgoth and Melkor is that they are the greatest. But like they both describe as like the greatest, the most skilled, the and everyone put their hopes in them, which is like never do that. They're great, but never put all of your eggs in one basket because apparently in this world the basket is really quick to put all of your eggs on the ground and smother them everywhere and break them into pieces because yeah. Like, and also, yeah, like as Josh says, like they're so strong, but everyone outlives them. It's like, eh, eh. Yeah, like is this this theme of like, I don't know if that's that that's a theme that comes back afterwards of like great people, like in which people put, in, in which others put great hopes, kind of like became the greatest disappointment of the all. Um, that's probably one of the qualities they have. They're great in everything, even in disappointment. Um, but yeah, like I like that's already twice. And if there's a third time, I will call that a theme. So I have two two theories here. One of which is that you know they were basically measuring Feanor by potential and like. It's not unfair to say that he had like the best Noldor potential, but boy, howdy, did he ever squander it. Um, and I'm trying to remember what the other one was. I don't remember. Never mind. That, that, we're just going to go with the one for now. Cool. Um, I had a comment, which is that uh, what you were saying, um, Eloise, about. I, I like I like what you drew out as a similarity between Feanor and Morgoth that they're like the most powerful mm. one of their kind, um, and uh, you're speculating you're 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 like wondering will that be a theme will that come back again yes it will the fall of Numenor. Okay, I remembered what the other one was. Remember how Feanor is a great orator. He just convinces everyone else that he's the best <laughs> in all of the ways. And they buy it, and it, it like 
everyone <laughs> is so convinced and we just get an objective perspective so we're like damn fano was the worst and everyone else is like fano was the best he talked to me once and oh my goodness the things he said about himself <laughs> what an amazing guy truly the best of us i mean if you ask a trump supporter or like a nazi supporter at back then like they probably would see that of hitler too they're the best this is a talk with the best world they have the best ones so great guys i think there's also a difference between like great the way we would use it now when we say that human is a great human and you like also are implying that they're a decent human a good human a kind human but i think often in in this text greatness is more equated with um like raw ability so if you are a great elf you are a powerful elf or you're an artsy elf um not necessarily a kind elf Yeah, no, I think you're definitely right that great is mostly synonymous with powerful. Yeah, similar to like the old historical text, texts that focus on like the great men and women of history. Um, you know, people like the terrible Roman emperors, the, the Mongol Khans, all those. Alexander the Great. Hey, he was pretty awesome. Alexander the Catholic. To stop. <laughs> the catholic kings they're so great so just bend down the continent it's fine tristan was like alexander the great was basically the fan or of his time and i was like yeah in the most unflattering way he burned out at 30 but he had so much potential to continue killing people to continue fighting the world well he did less killing and more like strange breeding programs to build familial ties so people wouldn't rebel it's kind of weird it's weird weird dude but effective <laughs> i guess again effective depending on what scale you're reading him effective on like breeding yes effective on niceness is i'm still digging uh... um I also just wanted to interject and defend Manway again because I feel bad for him. He's just too good for this world, guys. He's too innocent. He doesn't understand. It's not, he's not making a wise, uh, he's not wisely evaluating Feanor. He's just naively evaluating Feanor based on all the most optimistic things he can. Come on, you're he's only defending nice. Manway because you were Manway in the Silver Alien. <laughs> Manway's Actually, so nice, but also he doesn't learn from the mistakes, Rob. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mostly my bias comes from like the one particular line in Book of Lost Tales where um, like he doesn't want to hide Valinor and everyone else votes to do it. And then he just walks away and cries about it. It's just such like a, I don't know, I find it really touching. That's, that's the picture of Manway again. Somebody who cares too much, who's too naive and just has a lot of, might not be the most um, wise leader. He probably needs a better um, counsel around him, but 
think you know he does his best okay i think manway is like the personification of like a nice guy still has devastating consequences because like he's not the nice guy that's the nice guy's tm he's actually a nice he he like as you say too pure for his this world but the thing is um because he's in charge his decisions do matter and he's not learning from his mistake do matter too and um and and he does make choices that creates hurts by refusing to learn from his mistake and refusing to like face the fact that this great kid he loves so much who has great hair and who makes great jewel also is a great asshole um and is not beneficial to the community and and he does this he did the same before with melkor he's like but it, he's my brother and he did he could do great thing and he has great power and like it's like yes but he's not doing any of that and you've been ignoring that for too long and that's not okay at one point deliberate ignorance is as bad as like like not as bad but little like close to as bad as doing it yourself it's like you let it do it and in some cases like liberating milk or or i don't have another example but like in some cases you could have done things to prevent that you could have done things to prevent that you could have done this to at least lessen the hurt of that and because you had full trust despite the previous blows it went all to shit and i'm not saying it's manway's fault at the end of the day melkor and fiano are still the one who do the terrible things but not learning from his mistake manway like Um, Manway could have like padded the result of those terrible things by learning from his mistake because he would have been maybe more wary of Melkor. He maybe like would have considered that maybe they want to do bad things incredibly enough, even though they have great power, blah, blah, blah um and he didn't and because he's a chief of the valor and the chief of valinor it's a problem so in some ways this whole chapter is a bit of a testament to valor in action they're like boy last time we fought Melkor, some bad things happened, and there's men who are asleep, and they're, like, mighty fragile. We wouldn't want to, you know, deal with the problems we've created until they wake up. And then the men wake up, and they're like, boy, I guess we still don't want to deal with the problems we've created. So, okay, I don't necessarily agree with um, Eloise's, I guess, philosophical position that um, not doing something 
is the same as doing something bad. Like, I think that's contextual, I guess. Um, I would also like to add, though, that my biggest, <laughs> my biggest Valar issue when reading this chapter was the way, okay, the way they fall into or seem to be stuck in a pattern of evil almost seems required for them to get off their asses and do something. Um, this is like most strongly seen in that line where it's like, they finally decided to create some light that would be shared with the entire world. And the thing that prompted them to share light was not you know, realizing that the people out there were in darkness. It was their own personal sources of light in their own personal Eden being destroyed. Which is, I think, an understandable motivation, but also a fairly unsympathetic one. Yeah, Josh says preventative maintenance is important, not just repair. <laughs> yeah, like, um, the Valar are very reactive at this point when I think perhaps they could be a little bit more proactive. Again, even just the most basic things, like we have a lot of light, maybe we should try and find a way to share that light with the rest of the world. Um, that's a little, that's a little rough. Um, and then the other thing that to me makes them look pretty bad in this chapter is that immediately after doing the the whole light thing, the Valar are like, okay, great, we did one thing, so let's cut ourselves off even more from the world, fortify everything. Yeah, it's a really, um, it's a really self-centered perspective. Like, they rarely, they rarely consider things outside of what they're experiencing in the moment, kind of out of sight, out of mind. Because um, they know that light is required for plants and stuff to grow. Like they know that that is not happening because there's no light out there, but they didn't try to solve that problem because it didn't pertain to them and their garden and the children of Iluvatar in that moment since, um, you know, humans hadn't, hadn't woken up yet. It's, it's strange to me that they can be so selfish, but also good. Um, like, where's the where's the vala of selflessness, of of you know emotional intelligence? I don't know. Yeah, like I agree. Okay, it's Selmar, and he uh, gets deleted at the end of Book of Lost Tales. Who's Salmar? He's the Valar of like songs and language. I oh, think. Okay, so like Thoth. Uh, is it, is it yeah, I'm not that familiar with Egyptian mythology, mm -hmm. but yeah, he um, enters Valinor like singing, and he knows the tongues of every bird, beast, creature. I don't know. He's yeah. just the best with language, I think. Cool. It's Elmo, but he doesn't get along with the rest of the Valar and never tries to convince them to do things. And Elmo in the Book of Lost Tales is, you know, 
not as nice as he is in Silmarillion. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um, I agree with like um, Sophia's correction that it's not as bad to let something bad happen as to do something bad. And, but I just want to say is like, um, I feel like the bad thing that Manway does in that case is he doesn't step up to his responsibility as leader. Like he, he wants, he, he, he leads as if nothing had changed from the beginning of the song, as if like, and when, like, as if Milko hadn't like try his jazz solo, as if um, Melko hadn't tried to like, hadn't tortured Elf into Orcs, as if like, maybe Mel Manway doesn't know that, fair enough. But like, you know, like, as if Melko hadn't been an outsider at, from his own will from the beginning. And I think that from a leader, um, leading on yearning the past rather than dealing with what's present and what could happen due to what's happening in the present is a big flow. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to call that evil, but repetitively doing that is hurtful. And um, that's my biggest beef with Manway is that he he repeatedly doesn't learn. He refuses to change. And when he's forced to change because the Nordo are pissing out and Morgoth is back at it again, he's like, you know what's better than change? Isolation. I'm just gonna not change, but also not interact. So the changes that happen don't affect me and I don't affect any changes. And I'm like, I know change is scary, but please, stop want like stop this isolation or at least stop being the leader if you don't want to change stop being the leader step down let someone else do it like Olmo or Yavanna they know how things grow and change they realize what the heck is happening in the world you know um and like <laughs> To answer Josh's point that maybe he's scared of improvisation leading him down the Morgoth path, that's why he has the other Valhas to keep him in check, to like have counsel with him and be like, would that be a Morgoth thing? Would that be like, you know, like he doesn't even change his attitude toward Morgoth until like he really doesn't have any other choice. Because literally everyone is like, Manway, stop pretending he's still the nice little Vala who did not do who didn't do the jazz thing yet because that's not the case and it's so frustrating like it's it might not be evil but it's extremely frustrating to see that in a character and even more in a character who leads all of that shit 
I like a lot of that too. So this is reminding me quite a lot of the conversation that we had a couple weeks ago, I think, about um, what are the advantages versus disadvantages of having a leader who knows no evil, right? Um, and I, I definitely do um, agree with a lot of Rob's point from back then about how it's, it's really, really interesting to have a leader who maybe in many ways tends a little bit towards inaction or at the very least tends toward a sort of like naive optimism um because it it does in a certain extent make his make him have fewer like interests that are tied up in the world if he doesn't know how evil works and therefore theoretically makes him more objective um but I suppose his bias is just the fact that, you know, he sees the best in everything. Um, but yeah, what I wanted to say is that I do think that not understanding, being so good that you don't understand evil is both an advantage and a disadvantage. It's a disadvantage because when someone is trying to explain how something or someone has hurt them, um, you have a harder time understanding and seeing the intricacies of how that works. But it's also an advantage in certain ways because um, it, I guess, to a certain extent, reaches towards some kind of uncorrupted standard that is that can instill hope to see, you know? Like when something is that good and leads by example and makes you want to be that good to follow it and it kind of makes you have hope that this is what the world could look like if we all tried hard enough so yeah the thing is that as you said like we also talked about like the good what is good in Tolkien's world versus what is good in our world and correct me if I'm wrong what is good is in Tolkien world is the will of Illuvatar right or something like that it's kind of hard to say um certainly the will of Illuvatar is boundless and an ultimate standard for good um but i don't think it's the only way to measure goodness if that makes sense yeah because like the thing is that in that case because like my question is like the vala not saying anything about the humans so like lying by omission where does it fall I mean, they're under no directive to teach the elves. They choose to because they like having little pupils. Um, but I don't think that is either a good or an evil action except by the consequences that it has, um, which it's hard to know which way the consequences would go in a lot of situations. I mean, them out, not telling them about the men certainly has 
like i don't i don't see that as a moral action in any sense like i don't see it in a moral action as like they had to get like they were that their role is to instruct the elves because like as you said they chose to do that i see that in a moral action as they want a relationship but they don't without the transparency kind of thing or like without full transparency like and i understand that you want some secret like you want some like privacy in your relationships but at the same time um so like what i see this thing like the, the not telling about the humans thing is uh, more in the the elf were like quietly doing their thing in their in their in their corner so Vala come to them and like we want to establish a relationship so much so we want you to come live with us that means a strong relationship and they still lie by omission about a thing that is not like uh intimate and private it's a thing that's going to affect the whole world in a way and i, I think it might be too much of a stretch to say that they're lying in this case and you can correct me if i'm wrong the wording might i might not be remembering the wording correctly but to me it seems more like they just didn't get around to teaching them about this specific thing like right now i'm not lying to you by omission by not discussing, I don't know, the latest uh, advances in uh, gravitational wave detection when black holes collide. You know, I'm not lying to you by omission about that. I just haven't, it hasn't been on the top of my mind to discuss that with you. Yeah, like, I don't think the elves ever asked about other races. If they did, the Vala definitely would have talked about the men. But I think it's fair to say the Vala have a very different grasp of what matters in some ways than the elves do. And that is a differing standard which makes for problematic communications over the course of, well, the entire Silmarillion, but mostly in Valinor around Feanor and almost the only one who seems to understand how people work, which is a, a thing. I'm gonna try and find the wording Rob mentioned, but all I found so far was the most neutral possible wording of Manwe had not yet revealed it to them, or not even, I don't know if yet, yeah. For just, the elves, the Valar knew of the coming of men, the elves as yet knew not of it, for Manwe had not revealed it to them. Like it's the most, like you know who understands mortals besides Elmo? Nyana? Morgoth. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean he does in a negative light, and he uses that to manipulate them, but he does. He, he wouldn't be able to ma manipulate them so effectively if he didn't understand them. Exactly. He manipulates them exclusively by scaring them into submission, but... Well, and occasionally offering them things that they don't accept. Like untold wealth and the leading, leading an army of orcs. Morgoth understands us better than the rest of the Valar. Morgoth for President 2020.
Could it be worse? Um, <laughs> a president that understands you to play against you is not a good president. That's all I have to say. You can be very understanding, but still bad as a leader. Because if you selfish asshole who understands people and use that to manipulate them, you're not that now you don't want that for president. Because what you want for president in someone who not only understands you, that would be a great thing, but also wants to do good thing for the community, which is clearly not the Morgo stance on community. And to bring this all the way back around, you might just have been describing Feanor. No, I know. I know that uh, you can't intentionally put Morgoth and Feanor except for maybe uh, inventing snow and breaking <laughs> down mountains. Like, that's, that's just like a, like a power difference where it stands, but like, except from that, like, if you talk in general terms about one, you talk in general terms about the other. That was my first point, that they are very similar. <laughs> Anyway, we are about halfway through the uh, book study, so we should probably move on from the first page. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, so, okay, before we move on altogether from Of the Sun and the Moon, uh, would anyone first like to make any comments about Arian the Sun or Tilian the Moon? Okay, so we've been doing a Book of Lost Tales book study, and Tilian is clearly based at least partially upon Silmo. Um, a who is the guardian of Telperion, which at that time is called Silpian or something? I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, lies in Lorian's poppy fields, apparently. I'm just going to assume getting high. We don't know. But I think it's worth mentioning that he is described... His first description is as a youth that Lorian loved, which... And I will reiterate, is straight out of Plato. Like, yeah, Lorian is straight up gay for the moon. It's fine. Um, that, that's, that's, that's my random interjection from Book of Lost Tales for the day. I'm glad I stuck around for that. <laughs> but now I do actually have to go. Bye. Bye. I love the... The whole, like, the moon is pining for the sun, and maybe Lorian is pining for the moon. That's a very interesting love triangle. Um, and the sun is just, like, chilling, and she's like, you know you can, you know you'll die. You know I'm not interested in you, and you'll literally die out of my control. I Why are you so dumb? Um, yeah, I was just going to say that it's, it's cool that uh, you know, even if the moon pines for the sun, the sun can just be her own entity, you know? It's not really a love triangle in that sense, I guess. Like, she's just doing her thing, happy doing it. I mean, triangle doesn't mean, doesn't necessarily necessitate a reciprocation. It's like there's three points. You invent the third bar, it's okay. You know, like you have like the sun, the moon. And then you have Lorien on the moon, and then like the third bar, well, who cares? It's a triangle that's broken. 
It's okay. She's a strong, independent woman who don't need no moon. Strong, independent sun. Yeah. Yep. 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 Anyway. All right. Okay. Uh, I also love that the only Balrog who has not been corrupted by Morgoth is a, uh, like, lunging toward like women representation and I'm like see don't listen to the men they lie to you we don't know that she's the only one in fairness some of the Balrogs could be girls that's true but like the only one who did not listen to Mongoth is a woman all men did that's what I'm saying <laughs> again yeah. we don't know what if all she's what if all fire spirits are female and all Balrogs are also female. I think Balrogs yeah. are referred to with he him pronouns, at least like Gothmog is. Yeah, because Gothmog's Morgoth's uh, love child. <laughs> or maybe Morgoth no. and Sauron are misgendering them. It's part of their tactic to break them down and corrupt them and bend them to their will. I see. So also at the end of this chapter, we find out something that I want to point out right now because I think it's cool. Uh, that description of the Enchanted Isles, which, for those of you reading Lost Tales, know is a really big deal in Lost Tales and sort of, sort of becomes a little less important in the Silmarillion, but it mentions that, you know, not only did the Valar create a wall of mountains, but they also made the sea impassable and straight up, like, enchanted, uh, filled with shadows and bewilderment. Um, and strung like a net of islands together where you know the waves are incredibly dangerous and the rocks are shrouded in mist and even if your ship doesn't founder in the seas then you become weary and sick of the ocean and but then as soon as you set foot on the islands you are there entrapped and sleep until the change of the world is that when they make it land i don't know it could be when they make it round. Maybe it's when it ends, because we've also talked about the end of the world. Is this how people got to the New World? <laughs> they just fell asleep in the Enchanted Isles until Manway made the Iluvatar made the world round, and then they woke up and were like, "Well, we can't get home. There's no ships here," and and so they became the Native Americans. <clears throat> That's definitely how that goes, right? Sure. Uh, it's okay uh, with us, the anthropologist we're fine <laughs> she ever saw it does uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go down that road the, the, that conspiracy theory that Cole and I were talking about in the last <laughs> oh, Book of Lost Tales yeah, study about sure. yeah the Peloponnesians sailed to North America believe it ugh all right. Don't believe um, it. It's a lie. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, so, I, however, I kind of liked when, like, the Valor or Valinor, like, they're like, oh, we're going to seal up that thing. And they're like, hmm, don't forget the Tillery this time because they had it rough. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. Because, <laughs> like, and, like, however, like, the only reason they have a little, like, space in their mountains is like, oh, yeah, that's right, the elves need to breathe sometime. It's like, 
You yeah, really shouldn't keep pets. The top of the jar so the elves get some oxygen and don't. I know. Like, Vala should not be allowed to get pets. I'm sorry. <laughs> they, are, they are like, they have the capacity of keeping pets of like five years old. Um, I, I do like how, uh, I don't know, like, folk taily sort of all this stuff gets uh it's a tone that has often been sort of sanitized from the silmarillion i find uh but i really like it i enjoy it i like like i said the cute story about the sun and the moon and, and why they do what they do um, i like that yeah, it's, it's really interesting to look at the Silmarillion from the perspective of, like, sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but um, studying epics in class and specifically the sort of 1800s period where in order to be considered a real country, you had to have a national epic. So a whole bunch of people started editing folk songs together to create a national epic. Um, and so you can kind of see the different audience sensibilities that were present in the folk songs versus in the edited compiled epic. Um, the one I'm the most familiar with is the Kalevala, which was a big inspiration to Tolkien. Um, but in general, there was this deliberate effort to make the style seem like high and purged of the gross, to use some Tolkien words. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Like there, there was a very particular linguistic and also content censorship that was going on. So a Kalevala example would be like your high heroic epic um, of the Finnish people. Um, you can't include like body folk songs or like happy sexual content or like women singing about how their lovers taste like honey. Like, you have to edit all of that out. But you are allowed to keep unhappy relationships and, like, violence against women. So that's really interesting. I don't because know. that's dramatic. Yeah, because that's, a, that's acceptable tragic content. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, so it's really interesting. And I feel like there's almost a similar thing going on between Lost Tales and the Silmarillion, where Tolkien is trying to purge the Silmarillion of its more folkloric elements and have it exist in this realm of epic as a category. Um, and one of his issues that he runs into again and again is that is the Valar being too perilous. The Valar have to represent this ultimate good. Hmm. And so I think that's why you get this limiting of aspects like this really dangerous island thing that they created, which feels more perilous and then edges into the pagan rather than to the Christian. And here I was thinking what you were going to say was that the problem that he keeps running into is that everything is so gay in the Book of Lost Tales. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, that's an interesting point. Like we were just talking um, in the other book study about how the Silmarillion version of the Valar, they tend to represent some sort of aspect. I guess you could call it an aspect of Luvatar, maybe. But in the Book of Lost Tales, they're their own characters with their own motivations, and they don't just represent 
whatever sort of aspect of the world they represent, they also are very um, flawed and kind of human. Uh, so it's interesting that you kind of brought that up in a with a different phrasing. Hmm. That's cool. I should come to Lost Tales book study. <laughs> it's always at a consistently bad time for me. But, yeah. The time is very consistent. I was discussing shifting it around since the poll results seem invalid. Mm, but I see. We we shall see. We shall see. Sounds good. Okay. Moving to of men. I will give a brief summary of of men and then y'all can talk about it. Okay. So men awaken somewhere in the east with the rising of the sun which is to the west and they're like whoa whoa there's a big light over there let's head in that direction um so they so most of them do uh the elves call the men a whole bunch of things including (laughs) uh the second people the followers the afterborn the sickly the mortals the usurpers the strangers the inscrutable the self-cursed the heavy-handed, the night-fearers, and the children of the sun. It's ironic that they call the human self-cursed when they have <laughs> fianos and their son and his son's in there. Because the as self-cursed goes, you have Fiano and his son who purposefully walked into the terrible shit that they were gonna like suffer from. This reminds me of um in the previous chapters where they're like Wow, the dwarves fight each other? Wild. <laughs> wow, those humans got themselves cursed. Like the, the elf have no like mirror every time they write about themselves or like other people. They're like or like they purposefully punch the mirror and like or like turn it to an, an a, a dwarf and like they talk about the humans. They fight each other like the dwarves. They talk about the dwarves. They do that like the humans. And they like purposefully avoid the fact that if they look straight up, there's a mirror and they can look at themselves. I will say that like the elves, I think it's kind of wild. The elves are like, wow, you must have been cursed for all of the bad things that you do because you die. And I'm like, boy, if death was a curse for all of the bad things that people do, then all of the sons of Feanor and like most of the Nolda would end up Oh, wait. (laughs) That's interesting, because you're kind of suggesting that the reason the Noldor think humans are cursed is because humans die, and the Noldor die because they're cursed. Yeah, but the Noldor never seemed to clue into that point. (sighs) Yeah, I think as far as um unreliable narration goes i think all of this elvish commentary on the origins of men is about as unreliable as it gets i think there's just too much that doesn't line up with um you know other accounts like did they really wake up with the sun i don't know they have all this all these legends about how they were living in darkness for a real long time alone out there with some you know some some (laughs) horrific stuff just things like that. I, uh, and then obviously this list of, of uh, pretty derogatory 
uh, names. Like, yeah, yeah, the Eldar just they seem unable to comprehend the disadvantages of trying to make it out alone in the dark without anybody to help you. Um, and all of the advantages they got in Valinor being having all their needs taken care of and getting an education and, oh wait, this is turning too much into allegory. I'm going to be quiet now. <laughs> That's funny. My Probably my favorite elf bias thing in this chapter was how it opens with discussing, and it's a very short chapter, so this turn happens in like two pages, but it starts by discussing how the elves consider the sun to have been made for men, and men are the children of the sun. And then at the end of the chapter, it says that, um, it, like, yeah, that men usurped the sunlight from the elves. And I'm like, they can't usurp it if it was never yours and you never liked it. It sounded a lot like British. It's like, who dare you take that from me? Like, it wasn't yours to start with. Who dare you, though? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I don't have a British example, but I'm pretty sure like I can find it, find one or oh, several ones. But it's even worse because in this case, the British are openly acknowledging that it wasn't theirs in the first place. Yeah, that's true. It's like, How we don't want that shit. Those historical artifacts to be returned to you. They're clearly ours. We took them when we invaded your home country. But yeah, in this case, it's like they spend the entire time talking about how they don't want those things and how those things suck and belong to other people. And then they also turn around and they're like, wow, you took them from us. <laughs> um, okay, anyway, other thoughts on anything from Of Men? This, I mean, we covered it a little bit, but just this whole chapter feels like straight up Noldor propaganda. Like, let me tell you about this other race and how weird they are. <laughs> They're just the strangest. Well, they call them the inscrutable, which inherently implies that we can't understand them. And I'm like, there's, there's arguments that the Silmarillion was written, was laid down in Numenor, and I'm like, yeah, right. The Numenorians wrote this chapter, it would read a lot differently, trust me. This, this is elf propaganda. I like how the elves are so bewildered by the men because not only are they dying, but they're not, uh, they can't resurrect like the elves and they're like, they're dying and they can't come back. And I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Which reminds me of the self-cursed thing too, because literally the curse of mandos is like and you'll have to wait forever until you resurrect it'll be so long what a what a curse <laughs> except you will offend you're pretty great <laughs> um but yeah that's the curse on the noldor and that's really funny because yeah i guess that would be partly why they think the humans got themselves cursed <laughs> All right, Tristan had a really, so there was this one really wild sentence in here where it's talking about the difference between elves and men. 
right? Um, it talks about how back in these days, elves and men were of like stature and strength of body. Um, <laughs> so equally strong, like physically. Uh, but the elves are wiser and more skilled and more beautiful. Um, Elvish propaganda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly elvish propaganda. Possibly, like, it raises an interesting question about how much of this is just the fact that they've been living healthier lives where all their needs are taken care of. Um, the elves were immortal and their wisdom waxes and they cannot get sick. Um, but their bodies can be destroyed. And in those days, they were more like to the bodies of men since they had not so long been inhabited by the fire of their spirit, which consumes them from within in the courses of time. Okay. So who here has read the Athrobath? <laughs> Bob, I know you have. Um, it is the debate. It is the debate of Finrod and Andrath, and it is a fantastic exploration of mortality and just Tolkien's worldviews. It's okay. I've, we've never managed to discuss this, like, what, 15-page document in fewer than three weeks. But there's there's some notions in it that I think play into or play in contradiction of um, this, which is that let's see if I can remember them properly. The elves. Oh hey, hey, we're talking about the debate between Finrod and Andras. <laughs> so the elves have a unity of Hroa and Fea, or body and spirit, in a way that men they claim do not because their spirit is so happy with their body and is destined to remain with it for all time. Whereas the men, you know, long for something that is outside the world and their spirit soon departs their body because they're not fully compatible in the same way that elvish body and spirit is. And that is interesting to consider in contrast, I guess, to this line where it talks about the spirit being in, in some form consuming the body as a means of sustenance, perhaps. Um, and that inherent implication of the disunity of Roa and Fea that um, Fenrod is later going to argue against. So it's, it's an interesting counterpoint, I guess. And I'm not sure how to how to take it. The idea that elf bodies are gradually consumed by the fire of their spirits is very wild to me. I um I could almost chalk that up to like that debate is at a time when maybe the elves don't know what's happening to them over the course of eons. Um where whereas the Silmarillion comes after that, they've written that after they've experienced um, like the waning uh, that they'll go through. I mean, it's definitely interesting that um, life of like life is seen as consuming the body, like at least for the elves. Um, I'm pretty sure like uh, there's a lot of implication on like 
science and what it means like because like the first thing I thought when I thought about it is like does that mean the maybe the humans consume faster question mark uh, I don't know or are they so different I don't know uh, I mean I guess the text is saying it's quite different but like the elves don't know because they don't care to ask um, and yes questions I don't know but very interesting anyway so I think it's worth keeping in mind the um, two different ideas of elvish body and spirit as we continue reading the Silmarillion because I have not really recalled that one in the past um, and I'm quite familiar with the Athenian. So I think it would be interesting to see if we can like build cases for each of them or see what how we think they fit over the uh, remainder of the book. I don't know if we're gonna get any more evidence but I mean, there is Feanor who literally burns his body at his death. Feanor's yeah. spirit is like literally doing that. He's like, you know what? Um, I I had to go the, to the process quickly, so bye. And it's just so hot that I burned myself up. Yep. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, Feanor consumes not only his own body but also part of his mother's spirit. Mm -hmm. And they still think he's great. He's the best runner. <laughs> right. That would be terrifying. I know, right? That's like a pregnancy horror that I don't want to think about. Yes, exactly. It's like after that, I think every woman elf would be like looking at their husband and be like, You sure you want kids though? You sure? Because, like, I mean, I don't want to say, but, <laughs> you know, this Fano and Muriel, do we really have to go through that? Yeah, like, I would think twice about it, like, a hundred times about it before actually doing it or not even doing it. Um, for anyone who hasn't had a chance to read the Athrodath, I shared, uh, it's kind of a cute fan copy. Um, it's got all the text in it, but it also has like fake notes by Bilbo uh, written on it. Uh, that's, a, that's a source for it if you don't have Morgoth's Ring. I think it also has the, there's like a text that's referenced in that about the legends. Uh, I don't remember if it's in the main body of the text or not, about the legends that humans have concerning it's their beginnings in the notes it's, it shows up in the notes i think yeah uh and like in the in the sort of meta narrative of the text um Andreth says she's not willing to share these legends because they're too personal uh but then they're provided somewhere that's where i get a lot of my thoughts about how the silmarillion has a lot of uh unreliable narration on the origins of, of men I mean, even like the fact that they say only Beren came back from dead and would not speak afterward to mortal men, I'm like, to mortal men and elf, because otherwise you would know. Because like, he, like, officially for you, he didn't speak to mortal men, but I'm pretty sure he 
probably just didn't tell you and you're like pretending that he just kept that a secret is like no he might have just kept that a secret from you like the dwarf did with their language and you're still a bit salty about it but like we'll ignore that so that's going to be really interesting because i don't know if you remember this from of the sindar but it talks about how the green elves go and live in Osirian, the land of seven rivers that's where Baron and Luthien go live after Baron has come back to life. So the people Baron and Luthien interact with are pretty much exclusively green elves and ents. So when it comes to forms of knowledge that the Silmarillion tends to like either not have access to or to marginalize as less enlightened, green elves are pretty close to men in that, you know, in that hierarchy. I'd like to think that Pippin is the only one who actually knows what happens to men <laughs> after they die. Because he had just this long random chat with Treebeard at one point. And Treebeard was like, so I'm going to tell you about this this guy, Baron, who came back from the dead. And he told me all sorts of fun stuff. And Pippin's like, you what? <laughs> and never tells a soul. No, I think that if Pippin knew everyone would eventually know but it might not have gone into the Silmarillion because like he wouldn't have had time to tell Elrond and then it wouldn't have been in the text that Bilbo translated and so it wouldn't have been in the official text but like there's probably like at least if Pippin knew yeah maybe it's not in the Silmarillion for those reasons but I'm pretty sure all the Shires know now because there's no way that something Pippin knows that no one knows. There's not a thing like that. No, no, no. But also, the way that's going to go down in history is Pippin is like the rest of the hobbits are going to be like, sorry, what? The, the Thane told you that um, a tree told him what happens to people when they die? Yeah, yeah, he's insane. We all knew he was insane. He's been smoking a little much of that uh, pipe weed. <laughs> No, okay. It's gonna go down into history. Like you see in the good place, there is like this guy who's very famous in the afterlife because one time he got so high he guessed 92% right of what the afterlife is made of. And so but like he got so high, so no one believes that's what happens. And so <laughs> so basically that's how it's gonna go down. It's like so one time the thing got so high <laughs> and he told me that he invented that whole story that he got apparently from a tree, which Let's be honest, he was very high. Um, and, so, and so like everyone knows, everyone knows what the afterlife is made of, but no one knows that they know because they think he was so high. Yep. And like the Valar like, yeah, he was very high. I swear, <laughs> like the Valars who know. Yeah, like, <laughs> absolutely, like, yeah, it's canonical as, a very high rambling of people who were very high don't believe that it's he was so high <laughs> uh so it's 120 not 420 but we should probably move on um to chapter 13 of the return of the Noldor. um the the first i think a very significant thing here is feanor's death what Woo! what was notable about Feanor's death? Everybody Finally. <laughs> no, that's not how it went down. Okay. Yeah, weirdly enough, everyone but Morgoth 
got sad about it. Like, no, Morgoth was, yeah, well, Morgoth was happy about it, obviously. But everyone was like, it's so sad. We lost Fiona. I'm like, again, goldfish much? Like, literally 20 days ago, he, like, stranded you and burned down the ships. Um, Are we going to talk about that? No, we're never going to talk about that. But he also Oh, and also a, murdered you, Kim's man. He also gets a fun moment of foresight in which he's like, wow, we're never going to take Angband. Anyway, all of my kids, you'd better hold to that oath that I made you swear that, you know, is going to get y'all killed. You do that. Okay, cool. Bye. Yeah, so the text brings attention to the fact that Feanor has this moment where hypothetically things maybe could have gone a different way, right? Maybe he could have released his sons from the oath, maybe, but what he does instead is double down. <laughs> Listen, it's a thing to curse yourself. It's a thing to be an asshole to a whole entire people and a whole and other entire people and a whole and other other entire people. But like they're your sons. That's like it's like, oh yeah, I could make my son's life better. But you know what I could do too? You know what I could do too? I could also make their life so much worse. And with that, the life of everyone else so much worse. That'd be great. And he dies. And I'm like. Honestly, honestly, I'm so mad that his name goes on as kind of cool, but an asshole anyway, or like an asshole, but kind of cool, uh, because, okay, I recently read uh, like um, Death If, which is a a story in stories from the people of the Roda, the, from the Rhode Island people, which is like Mickey stories. And the thief is about a thief. And one of the things they say in that is that it's not cool to act in a way that no one in your family will have good things to say about you. And that's what Feanor should have deserved. No cool things about him, no songs about him, only to remember him as shame of the past that he ever existed and sired people who have to bear his name and his past deeds. And they don't want to name him because otherwise it reflects back on them even when they're good people, which we know that's not the case. But if they had been good people, it would have reflected bad on them to have this dad. And it's not even what happens. People still agree that, yeah, we could make a nice song about him, or a couple of them. And I'm like, no, no. He did not deserve this in any point of life. He did not deserve great story about him. He did not deserve great song about him. He was an asshole and he should have been forgotten from history. And I'm mad that he's not, or at least that he's not forgot, like remembered as the asshole he was only. So the other thing that we get about Feanor is shortly after his death, he goes to the halls of Mandos, and Mandos is like, cool, you're staying here forever. 
that's the part I loved in like um, the um, of the sun and moon because like when Mondas is like it's still evil, and I'll see him soon to tell him so, and I'm like Mendos like. I love how petty Mendoz can be. Sometimes he's like, like he has this like small remark that no one pays attention to because apparently no one pays attention to Mendoz except when he actually claims a doom. But like when he's like, Fenno's like, like a couple of chapters of, of, before he was like, I'll be the first elf to die. And Mendoz's like, not the first. And then uh, he's like, <laughs> like, still evil, gonna die soon and it just happens like literally three pages later and i just love that like i leave for like the foresight of mendos who's like ignored by everyone but like you can see it anyway and i just this is beautiful um i have a question more so than a comment uh where do we get the idea from that Feanor is remembered fondly So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what Eloise was talking about now was more that his positive deeds are remembered at all. So, for example, people still use the Feanorian characters, right? Like Tengwar is also known as like Feanor, the Feanorian alphabet. Um, and that a lot of the songs are about the things he did. So like the Noldolante is in theory about the overall fall of the Noldor, but also in theory about how glorious their battles were. Um, when it comes to uh, the other point that was there was that people were sad that he died. Um, Manwe was sad that he died, which we already talked about. Uh, I'm going to try and see what else is here. Um. I think it's like he's he might not be remembered fondly as a person because, let's be honest, he was an asshole. But like a lot of things he did, like he still has a epistate of great covered of all over him um like up until like he actually does terrible thing like the things that are questionable that he does are like kind of downplayed i fi i find like it's like uh, he did this thing but he did the things that had terrible consequences but they didn't know at the time or something like like that sounds a bit like that to me and it might just be remembering badly what the text is made of but um i don't really get that vibe i will say particularly with Feanor himself because there is a whole lot about like he swore this terrible oath and this oath was very bad and his decision was very bad um, and in Of the Return of the Noldor, we get specifically, uh, no love was there in the hearts of those that followed Fingolfin for the house of Feanor, for the agony of those that, for the agony of those that endured the crossing of the ice had been great, and Fingolfin held the sons the accomplices of their father. Wow. Six out of six. That's bad. 
Okay, yeah. would you like to explain this comment no. that you keep making, Tristan? No, not at this point. Okay. Uh, I'm going to do it. And there's a Lost Tales version where um, one of the two twins, so one of the the sons of Feanor that we all forget about, Amrod or Amras, is still on the ships when Feanor burns them, and Feanor burns one of his own sons to death. I love Kara's face. Um, is there anything in the Silmarillion that ever nullifies that? Do we ever get told yes. that all seven... Yeah. Yes, because you get told that Amrod and Amras have a kingdom in X place, and Amrod uh, and Amras die on the attack in the mouth of Syria. I, I think it's just a mistranslation of Amborosa. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm willfully going to ignore that fact, <laughs> just so I can keep this narrative that Feanor burned one of his children alive, because that's the kind of person he is. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay, so, uh, yeah. Speaking of um, the, the oath progressing, Mytheros does some shit. Let's talk about Mytheros and Fingen, everyone. Someone start us off. Um, I love them. It's a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I love them, but it's a bit terrifying that politics is based on two men having friendship. And that may not be still there on one side because like Fingon is like yeah I still like Maedrus and he's like I'm not sure he still likes me but I still like him maybe we can patch up our two people entirely based on that and I'm like ah, that's very thin hope like good for you it worked out because Maedrus is not as much of an asshole as his father yet question mark um but um um, I mean, he doesn't start with a C, so maybe there's hope for him. Um, but uh, yeah, like the politic of friendship among the dirigents, like the, the leaders, yes, has advantages, but is also for me absolutely terrifying because it's very thin. This, okay. The, the idea that like your whole fate does depend on what relationships your leaders have like I I, under, I understand what you're saying there I don't think I, I feel like what this was going for was um a sort of one good deed begets another sort of mentality like one person chooses radical forgiveness and then that kind of creates more healing um and I think that that's possible because think I don't think Fingen rescues Mythros thinking that it's going to heal any political rifts. I think Fingen rescues Mythros because he loves Mythros. Which, yes, all right, Tristan, would you like to explain what you were saying earlier about how gay this is? This is very gay. Yes, continue. Okay, so Fingen is like, I'm going to go find Mythos. And he climbs a mountain, and he's like, boy, I don't know where Mythos is. So he whips out this harp. He's been carrying a harp up this mountain because that's just who he is as a person. And he whips out this harp, and he starts playing. 
and he plays this song, and then he takes a pause in the music, and from far above him, he hears a response to this song. Does this remind you of anything? I don't remember anyone else who's like, boy, I'm just gonna go find my boyfriend, and um, starts playing a song, and then from above him, hears a response to this song, and is like, aha, my boyfriend, he's up above me. We are, um, just, just to make this clear, we're talking about Sam and Frodo in the Tower of Kirithungal. No, Kirithungal is the past. The right. tower that's right above it. I think it's still the Tower of Kirithungal. The tower. Okay. Whatever. Listen, singing and dancing are two things that makes people fall in love, and that's just a talking fact. <laughs> That's true. Thank you very much for that. Songs are very much associated. So a hetero couple fall in love through dancing in the wood and homosexual couple fall in love by singing to each other in a tower in Dread Danger. That's just how it works. This is just the two category of love. And all of the rest is tragic love because that's not how they fell in love. The straight guys are dancers and the gay guys are singers. <laughs> Uh, so the happy people can start a musical. It's beautiful. I would challenge. I would challenge this slightly because, like, we're gonna get to Baron and Luthien, and to be fair, there's dancing in that, but also to be fair, there's singing in towers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Aragorn like to <laughs> Remember that whole like you sing in despair, and then your significant other hears your singing and sings back in their imprisonment in a dungeon like yeah that's what i'm saying yeah you're right that happens in baron and luthien too which does not make fingen and mytheros seem less gay can i just say no i'm just saying that singing can't be exclusively two gays because baron and luthien do it that's yeah. fair but it's just that people in love get to sing in that case. they're just a laugh they just get to sing what is singing is for people who are destined to be together anyhow um i love fingen just overall, that's my thoughts on this passage. <laughs> this is true, and he gets a great moment later in the chapter too. So, just thinking, what what an absolute lad. He's he's the best. Um. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, on. like, I kind of like the fact that um, when they can't get together, like Medra's like, just kill me, and like Fingen is like, yeah. Good idea. And <laughs> just a little prayer before I do, but like, yeah, yeah, did. Um, but once they can like have an opportunity and he's like, oh, I can't get that. The first thought of Mater is like, just kill me. And like, I'm like, you know, there's something else I could try to cut before I cut your head out. It's your hand, you dummy. Like, no. And that just exemplifies how the old brain the house of Yano has. Like, it's death. Or, like, it's good solution, full good solution, or death. And I'm like, you know there's, like, gradients in the middle of that? And Fingon is like, yeah, it's so done with Medra's bullshit. It's like, there's gradient, and I'm used one of this gradient. You're going to have to learn to fight with your left hand. Sorry. And for a moment, honestly, for a tiny moment i was i was afraid that madras would hold that against fingen that he had to cut his hand i 
because like it's a house of piano you never know how it's gonna go like i'm like walking on eggshell around them i'm like who is the next one who's gonna blow up in the face of his allies who helped them just like literally two minutes ago and like destroy everything that can that that deserve. everyone else has trying to be to bad to build like i don't know and i'm very glad midras did not do that yeah unfortunately he has brothers not only is that but not only does he not do that but this is actually like a character development moment for my thoughts. Mytheros is going to be both less rash and less terrible after this. I mean, he's still kind of an asshole in this chapter, but... Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the moment when Medros is an asshole and being like, Haha, he just gives that because he has no control over it, like, currently just doubles down as being a bigger asshole, so, like, I kind of forgot that Medros had been an asshole in that part. So, yeah, um, this also uh, very much, this is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the only time Manwe answers a prayer in the Silmarillion, in, in the Quenta Silmarillion, I'm not counting the Akalabeth. I'm um, not sure. I think we're going to have to wait and find out. We'll have to wait and find out. Um, but it does very much tie into a Silmarillion theme of the power of love to do the impossible. Mm -hmm. Which, the more I think about this, the more Baron and Luthien parallels there are between this story and Baron and Luthien. Which... In the moment of Dyer's need, you get animal assistance is strongly not helping Tolkien's case that this is a completely platonic cousinly love. Yeah. I mean, does he make that case? I mean, in like a very broad meta, like mm -hmm. homosexuality, what's that sort of sense, yes. But but I don't think in the Silmarillion specifically, no. He never goes out of his way to say they're not gay because that's just the assumption. Who's gay? Yeah. No one is gay. Also, this is a completely gay-free book. Yep. Nobody nobody asked him, right? Because nobody True. read this. People read Frodo and Sam and were like, is gay? And Tolkien was like, no. But nobody read this to be able to ask him, is gay? And Tolkien was like, yes. <laughs> Tolkien was like, no, Frodo and Sam are not gay. If you want to see the gay couple, tune in for my next book, okay? And then he died. And Christopher was like, oh, we have to give them the gay now. That's actually very funny in light of how the entire Lord of the Rings is plugging the Silmarillion. Yeah. Frodo and Sam are the teaser gay couple. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, Kristen. Yeah? Why don't you guide us through the rest of this chapter? Um, is this my punishment? <laughs> I can spare you from your punishment for a second. Great. That's kind of a silly comment. That's not that silly. Why did he cut off his whole hand? You know, to get out of manacles, you can just like take off a thumb. <laughs> Maybe it was like really tight. I don't know. No matter how tight it is, 
if you take off the thumb, the hand is no wider than the wrist, especially if you fold <laughs> because it. Because he had his harp, but he didn't have his surgical instruments, so he was like, not trying that. I, I think it's so that uh, he could leave the hand of Mythos giving um, Morgoth the middle finger. <laughs> okay, yeah, reasonable. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> I just, I just imagine Majors being like, "Okay, if you're not killing me, wait a minute," and then like he gets the hand, hand. And, then, and then like like this one all get finds like, so we have two news. They're both bad. One of them is that Majors is king. The second thing is that the only thing of Majors we still has is, and like <laughs> gives a hand to, like, and then he promptly dies because that's what you do with all that gives you bad messages. But I just love it. That would make a really, really good visual joke. Yes. I want to find a fan artist to draw that. I can do it. It'll be shitty, but I can do it. So if I'm going to guide us through the rest of this, um, the next important thing that happens is basically Angward goes south and talks to Thangle. And he's like, hey, Thangle, we're here now. Sup? Does anyone want to talk about um, how Thangle responds to Angrod and how everyone else responds to Thangle's response to Angrod? Thangle responds by saying, I'm the king of the world. Yup. Oh, and the light touches his mind. I have a thought. It's about, um, like, who are people, I guess. Um, but, like, I guess it's, it's really just notable in the way that the Noldor, and we're going to come back now to uh, hierarchy, and the hierarchy of elves that's being created. But the way that the Noldor come back and choose to, first of all, like, Despite what they say afterwards about Thingle being, about Thingle telling them where they can live, like, he's the only person they even bothered to ask, right? He's the only person who they went to and were like, where are you already living? Um, and had a response. At no point did they consult anybody else who lives in Valerian about where they might be living and might not want. Um, Noldor to live. They don't even really acknowledge the existence of people outside of Thingol's people, and we know there are other elves there. They're not in places, they're not generally in the places that the Noldor are concerned about because the Noldor would really like to be forming, you know, a siege. <laughs> but it's also notable that they don't even talk to them. They don't even send a representative to go talk to the Green Elves. People who haven't seen People, people who have no no real concept of like the light of the trees are not not valid. Don't get don't get asked questions. And that's just a thought. It's also like comes up later when you see Nargothrond, and as Nargothrond becomes more important, the sense of the fact that Finrod was not the first person to decide to live there becomes more important too. Also, That's for later. see them. So the fact that there is a negative association with not having seen the light becomes really clear in this chapter when 
they use that as an insult. Like Caranthier, I think it is, who's like, oh, Thingle, why do we listen to this dark elf living in his caves? Which is an incredible thing to say for someone who lives with like a literal god who could smite you. And also who actually is not a dark elf because he was one of the first to go to Valinor and come back. So get your facts straight, Karen there. Um, but yeah, like it kind of echoes what's at the end like roughly at the end of the chapter of men when they're like clearly you have the color quendi and then you have the moe quendi which some of them gets close to us but never as good as us and then you have the men they exist um like i wonder how much of like this hierarchy is like well first it's obviously due of like closer to the valor but like there's also a hierarchy of like um how much great deeds they do i think and like powers they have or like uh but great according to the nordor because so two things with that um first if you don't contact people, you don't know what they do. Or like, you know less about what they do, except if they do something so big that you cannot ignore what they do. So like saying that, like for example, like the Nordo did the best thing and then the Moikwendi did the next best thing uh, and then the human did the next best thing which is not much. Uh, it's also a bit of like, maybe they just don't know what the Moriquendi did. Like for the green elf in particular, because they just, like in the case of like the gray elves, they were cut off. Most of them could not, literally, like literally could not go and see what they were doing. Uh, for the green elves, they did not even care to do it. Um, and then everyone east of like Erend Luin, there are people that east of Ered Luin? <laughs> Who cares? Um, so that, first there is that. Uh, they have a lesser amount of things done by other people. So they would say, oh, well, they have done less good th less great things than we did because of course they know everything they did, but of course also they don't know what everyone else did. And the second point is, um, the definition of great is like based on what they do too. It's like you are great if you are a great craftsman. You are great if you do great songs. But what if, um, for example, the green elf consider you are great if you have a good relationship with the ants and all of Yavana's creatures? In that case, like the Nordals are not the greatest. Like they, I'm not saying they're bad at it, but like I don't, I'm not sure it's even men, ever mentioned. But like they, they're not as great as people who actually actively cultivate a relationship with it. Like so, uh, as Rob said, heavily Nordal biased, and not only 
in the fact that the nodals only know what the nodals did and have little interest or little access to what the other people did, but also they judge the world based on their conception of what is good, what is not good, what's great, what is not great, because we accepted that great and good is not the same thing necessarily. Um, and they don't try to see other concepts of greatness that other groups of people could have. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it also just shows a lot of ignorance on their part. Um, like it kind of ties into that chapter that I really like, uh, where we're kind of led into the fact that Thingol and his people have been fighting in the darkness against the forces of darkness. And they've been waging this war and trying to survive and have been pushed back to this smaller area. And then the arrogant Noldor show up and say, hey, you know, we're just gonna, we're just gonna plop down. It's fine. Don't worry about us. We're not gonna try to cooperate or, you know, see what you know or exchange military knowledge or anything. We're just gonna, we're just gonna make it work. We're awesome. Yeah, and Karate is a very good impersonification of that. It's like, we despise people, with, but we're going to profit off of you, nonetheless. And that's what he does with the dwarf. And it drives me nuts. It's like, he doesn't even have the basic respect for the people who are making him powerful. He thinks he deserves to be powerful because he exists. Speaking of the dwarves, we get two interactions with the dwarves in this um, in this chapter. We get Caranthia showing up and being like, "Wow, dwarves are ugly," and then uh, later on we get Finrod and Turgon and their you know FOMO-induced hallucinations about maybe building someplace safe. And we get Finrod specifically um, making deals with the dwarves to help him build his uh, Menegroth light. Nagathod. Do people have thoughts on the dwarves or on the elvish relations with the dwarves that they want to share? On the dwarves, I really wonder was it even bother with the elves. But, like, I guess that they do bother because like some of them are not too much of an asshole and give them like give them opportunities to like walk like to show off their walk and their skills because like I don't think like the dwarves are like oh we need walk so like no we want to show off like there's a bit of that too it's like we are the best at building those mountain places we are the best at that and they they could do it but it'd be bad and like it'd be terrible and also they they wouldn't have a trace of us and like might have well show them that we can do it something like that because like i think there's also like in all craftsmen or builders or like whatever in this world, there's this pride in making thing and joy in making thing. 
So whether or not it's for rubbing it into the face of the elves, I think it's also for personal like, oh, an opportunity to build things that we are good at building. So things the elves put, like the dwarf put up with the elves because that gives them those opportunity. But I do understand why this long lasting distrust and disdain of the elf because damn, hi, are they holy and not that cool, <laughs> like rude. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that as we go through the Silmarillion, this the Silmarillion is basically what the events described here are what apparently cause the rift between elves and dwarves. What in this chapter? No, 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 in the Silmarillion, like okay. in the Quenta Silmarillion. So, uh, multiple things. Like most of it, I think, is about the uh, the the future, the future Nauglamir stuff. We talked about the Nauglamir, I think, in this. Um, so that stuff causes it, but there are also, I think, other things that may or may not contribute. But either way, the Silmarillion is the period of, like, the legendary past that the memories of the elves and the dwarves return to when they have arguments. And so right now we're very early and we're still in the phase where things are going well. <laughs> With some hints that it's going to be friends. <laughs> yeah. Other elves are not as good at making friends as Finrod is. Finrod's just friendly. Oh, I remembered what I was going to say about like relationships and singing. Um, another alternative is that you hear singing and you're like, when you're wandering in the woods and you're like, holy shit. Um, and so you follow the singing. And then the singing people all fall silent because they're like, who is this beautiful man? And then you sing to them. That's another way to start a relationship. Is this Finrod and the men? Yeah, this is Finrod yeah. and the men. In fairness, it's because he shows up while they're asleep. But whatever. Oh, he does? Okay. I'm pretty sure. But like, also, in your regular life, you shouldn't just follow singing in the woods. That's a good way <laughs> to end up in the news. No, you should, the, the, the lesson learned from Tolkien is always follow singing in the woods. It only leads to good things. Another thing about the dwarf elf relationship I see is that um, it's yet another example of the elf not bothering to learn other cultural references and their own. I mean, maybe the dwarf don't try either, but we don't know because it's all elf perspective. But like, it's very clear here that they find the dwarves weird, useful, but weird. And they're not trying to understand how the dwarves see the same things as they do. Like, how do they conceptualize living in cave? How do they conceptualize like they con like say relationship to the world and like all of that? They, like maybe there are some wait we mentioned last time that there's 
the first elf to be on family relationship with the dwarves and actually like the cool is probably Legolas. Um, um, yeah. Uh, it's because like I find they really have this attitude of like we don't understand it so it's not good because it's not like us or it's not like fully good or it's not as good as us because it's not like us instead of taking the approach of like we don't understand it um let's try to make steps towards understanding better and it clearly shows and it's, it seems to repeat constantly. <sighs> internet. Sorry, my internet's being an asshole. Uh, but I don't know, did, did I cut? When did I cut? No, we cut it off. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, all right, does anyone have any final thoughts either on the Dagor Agloab glorious battle or on anything else in these chapters that they want to bring up? Yes, Sophia. <laughs> you know the microphone is up and you're just allowed to talk. Um, your comment on how the Noldor are bad colonists also reminded me of um, the discussion earlier about how they don't consult with anyone other than Thingol. And I think part of it is that they're only talking to people who have similar government structures. So we found out earlier that the Green Elves no, like don't take a king after Denethor, son of Lenway, dies. And so... But what about Boromir, his son? Thingol <laughs> um... don't really seem to know what to do with um, people who aren't kings in exactly the way they understand themselves to be kings. Like... They don't talk to the green elves. They talk to Thingol, who's the king, but they don't talk to Melian, who's the real power. Mm, real wisdom. <laughs> yeah, that's a thought. Other thoughts? I mean, also the the real power too. Uh, she is the only. Re we lost you there, Bob. Everyone? No. Oh, I could hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I was just saying that she's also the real power. Like without her, I think the the Sindar would have been wiped off the map um, during the the dark times when uh, when Melkor came back and started his assault. She is definitely the. Um physical slash magical power, but she's not really the political power is I guess what I was trying to say there more clearly. Yeah. Because she chooses not to be. All right. Then I guess that is it. Thanks for coming to book study, y'all.